When the history books are written in Scotland, there'll be a chapter on the Hockey family. If we get this right, no one will bother whether they own their house or not. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss great guests and generous giving. We also talk to CBI Scotland Director Tracy Black and Glasgow Chamber of Commerce Chief Exec Stuart Patrick. And in the boardroom, Tom and Willie answer your calls and provide business advice. If you have a question or want guidance, you can get in touch by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterNockey. Gentlemen, our 20th show, and the last one before you take a little break for the summer. We've had some amazing guests and really entertaining tales. What have been your highlights? Tom? Well, first of all, I can't believe it's 20 episodes. My goodness, Willie, his time has flown Flown past. The feedback I'm getting is that there's a radio show now in Scotland that's talking positively about business. And this was Willie's idea, and I salute him for it. It's absolutely brilliant. I think actually we're beginning to achieve what we set out to do. Uh, when I talk to people now, they do believe there's a connectivity in business, that people now know more about the help that's out there if you're a startup or, or you're a scale-up business, that they know where to go. People know now about the edge, they know about Entrepreneurial Scotland, they love the updates from the Chamber, from, from Stuart. So all of that, I think, for me, to, to get feedback that it's actually making a difference in working, that's, that's a big highlight for me. Must have been a few highlights that, that stick in your memory. For me, I think it was about Chris Evans' parrots, <laughs> parrot that went missing. Um, what about yourselves? Boy, turn up getting a police escort. Yeah. I think that was a highlight. That gave us something to talk about for 10 minutes. I mean, I think another highlight for me has been the great Scott. Yeah. I just love those stories. I find them very inspirational and I hope it's a feature that, that we keep when we return. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's it's been an education listening and hearing about some of these iconic Scottish businesses that I knew nothing about. If you want to catch up on all the entertaining guests and the brilliant advice... There's a series available on podcasts. Tune in at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk. Well, we can bring you back to the news. The Sunday Times Rich List recorded 171 UK billionaires, up 24 more than 12 months ago despite the pandemic. Is that good for our economy and wider society? And then should we be imposing a temporary wealth tax on those who profited from the pandemic, Tom? I think we've talked about it in previous episodes with Denise Coates. I am all for entrepreneurs striving, creating businesses, creating wealth, paying their taxes. It's what makes the world go round, Donald. If any of the listeners haven't read it, if you go on to Google and look for Jeff Bezos's last shareholder letter, I sent it around all my team because he's, he's the richest man in the world, but he talks about how Amazon has created wealth for such a wide base, such a wide base. So I am for more billionaires, as long as they're creating the jobs, paying their taxes, all the rest of it. Really? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, I'd like to think that in our own way, we've done a bit of that. Um, I took my senior management team away this week, the guys that are going to be involved in building the houses. And... um, 
I was more than impressed to see the car park, you know, when they all turned up at the, at the lodge <laughs> down at Loch Lomond. So I think that, um, you know, people who are working for us, who are working very, very hard, are reaping the rewards. And, and like Tom, uh, you know, the more billionaires, the better, as long as they're creating jobs here and paying their taxes, um, the more the merrier. We've also had the giving list, which for the first time topped four billion. Tom, you were number thirteen on the list, having donated fifty-eight million to good causes. Why is it so important to you? Well, I'm actually quite proud that twenty years ago, um, you and Hunter, who's the chief exec of the Hunter Foundation, and I approached the Sunday Times, and we were a bit. Well, I was a bit fed up seeing my name only on a rich list. I, if Listen, we're we're not without ego, but what do I want to be known for? I want to be known for what I've did with my money, not the number of zeros after my name. And we approached the Sunday Times and said, how about a giving list? And they took it up. So this was 20 years of it, Willie. So over 20 years, I'm, I'm very proud of the number, which is 138 million over 20 years that Hunter Foundation's given to charity. Um, 58 million was for last year. You know, we've had a good year, so... Um, there's never been a greater need for it and I think that's a list that I strive to be the top of I never will be at the top of that one Donald but um, let's get the same competitive instincts that drive entrepreneurs to make money is to actually do something positive with their money because as Andrew Carnegie taught me we don't want to be the richest folk in the graveyard Willie, you've been also been very generous with your money for lots of good causes. I don't think that my giving would come to the VAT that Tom's paid <laughs> <laughs> to good causes. Um, yeah, no, we, we set up the City Charitable Trust just a, a number of years ago and, and we're delighted. And I always tried to, at this target, I've tried to get to a million pound a year, you know, giving away, giving away. And I think people, when they look at the rich list, there should be a, you know, a correlation between there and the giving because really you can, you can count that as a tax because people are, are deciding to give their money to try and help people less fortunate. But I, I would like to think now, um, just like Tom, when you're in a rich list or people talk about your money, these are all titles that can get taken away very, very quickly. So these titles <laughs> don't mean anything. <laughs> these, these titles don't mean anything to anybody, right? So, and I think as Tom says, be remembered, you know, for what you've done with your money, but not how much money you had. Um, I'm quite fortunate, you know, with all the things that are read in the paper. And all, I've still got an overdraft. I'm delighted by that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm no kidding. <laughs> Now, in the latest of our brilliant series on Great Scots, we tell the story of John Menzies, or I'll just about find out whether it's actually called John Mingus. Mingus, yes. In 1833, John Menzies spotted a gap in the market. Leaving his London publishing job, 25-year-old John travelled north and opened a bookshop at 61 Princess Street, Edinburgh, which was to become the only wholesale bookseller north of the border. In 1837, he became the Scottish agent for sales of the Pickwick Papers, the first published works of Charles Dickens. He was also the first to sell the Scotsman Daily newspaper over the counter. By the end of the 1840s, the golden age of rail had hit the nation. Virtually every town in the UK was served by a station. And in 1857, a new phenomenon appeared, the railway bookstall. In just a few years, John Menzies had secured the rights to bookstalls in almost every part of Scotland. And by the time he handed John Menzies and co over to his sons, the business had thriving wholesale premises in Edinburgh and Glasgow, 
Although John Menzies' achievements were remarkable, his son John and Charles Menzies took the business into an era of extraordinary expansion, transforming a local business into one recognised nationwide. The First World War brought with it opportunities for expansion due to the constant need for news distribution and, by 1934, there were 13 branches around Scotland. On 7th May 1941, disaster struck. The manager of the Greenock branch, James Kyle, arrived to find his warehouse a smoking ruin from an air raid the previous night. But the business marched on, continuing to both expand and innovate. Rapid expansion through acquisition saw John Menzies' presence spread throughout the UK, and in 1960, the limited company was incorporated, followed by a share issue in 1962, which saw around 20% of the business distributed to employees. In 1987, the directors began to lay the groundwork for the business we see today. The acquisition of Scan International Group and CargoSave saw the business beginning to handle large volumes of overnight and heavy freight. At the same time, John Menzies Wholesale was now distributing over 26.5 million newspapers daily. Further acquisitions and contract wins saw John Menzies grow internationally, with major deals also being won in the UK, with London Heathrow Airport and British Airways. By 2017, other countries and contracts had come online, and John Menzies had become a global player in cargo, fueling and ground handling. This sparked the decision to move forward as a pure play aviation business. And so, in 2018, the board agreed to sell the entire share capital of the distribution business. The transformation of John Menzies' business had come full circle, and the next evolution of the aviation market would become the main focus. From just one man in 1833 to over 32,000 today, John Menzies' PLC can almost certainly be added to the list of Scotland's greatest business ventures. Scott's on the Go Radio Business Show. Delighted that I got it right with John Menzies. Uh, fantastic organisation, not least because they're delivering 26.5 million newspapers. Probably not anymore, Donald, because it's all went online, as you would know, at the Herald. But um... Ouch, that's my <laughs> ouch. Glad you're going on holiday. <coughs> William, nice to see you. Yes, <laughs> can you imagine that a business set up nearly 170 years ago um, today, how it morphed from obviously being in, in the, the printed world and selling books, now to being one of the biggest players in the world in aviation, in facilities management around aviation, and they don't sell newspapers, they don't deliver newspapers. So that is really, that, that's a bit of a, a sea change of how that whole business was set up and what it is today. Yeah, I, I mean, as I said, this is one of my favourite parts of the show. So if anybody's listening and they've got any ideas for us about great Scots that they know about, just um, write in to, to the show and we'll put together the wee bit on the great Scots because I, I, I just love this. I never knew the story of John Menzies either. Neither did I, no. considering how, for how long they've been delivering papers and Amazing. distributing them. So Great. We're now joined by Stuart Patrick, Chief Executive of the Glasgow Chamber of Commerce, for a roundup of what's making the news in the Chamber this month. Welcome back, Stuart. Guess it's been a difficult month for a lot of your members. Well, <clears throat> yeah, last month I went with a message of cautious optimism for Glasgow's economy, and I should have known better. Indeed oh, oh. you should. The impact of keeping Glasgow in a level three island and with a ban on travelling in and out of the city has been severe. Uh, for our retail and hospitality community, it's, it's almost the worst combination yet. You open, you're incurring costs, but the trade's been heavily reduced, and, and you're getting very limited 
limited, albeit welcome, financial support. So it's not uncommon for uh, member businesses across the city to see the trade that they'd built up since April slashed in half at least uh, and almost at a moment's notice. They're essentially back where they started. So despondent was the member reaction that we worked alongside Council Leader Susan Aitken to make urgent representations to the Deputy First Minister, John Swinney, and to the Cabinet Secretary for Finance and the Economy, Kate Forbes. We met with them early uh, in the week uh, to explore what the exit route from Level 3 would look like, um, the extent of the additional financial support that might be available for affected businesses and the importance of distinctive support for Glasgow's complex city centre economy in the National Recovery Plan. Um, and if there's one clear and simple lesson that we have learnt from all that we've been through, it is just how important it is that all the strands of city centre life work together. The centre, which after all, it supports over 150,000 jobs. Wow. Um, it needs office workers, students, tourists, shops, hospitality, the nighttime economy, public transport and residents. And without one or more of those, it simply doesn't function effectively. And the bigger the city, the more that is true. Only London has had a more challenging experience than Glasgow in the UK. So the route map out of the damage has to include the plan for reopening offices, including a date for the end to the homeworking default, the plan for students to get back to our colleges and universities, the plan for increasing the capacity on public transport, and the plan for the return of the major events and visits that keep our tourism economy flourishing. All of these have to work together. There's a lot for the Glasgow City Centre Task Force to do to make sure all those jobs are safe and that the damage done to the economic fabric of our centre is repaired. And we can all see that. We don't underestimate the scale of the task. The city centre may not be crucial to everyone, but when it comes to attracting investment, showcasing our city to the world and generating jobs, it has been and it's going to remain one of our most important assets. But perhaps the most optimistic development might be the emerging signals from the Glasgow outbreak that we can afford to rely more on the vaccination programme as our primary line of defence. If the link between cases and hospital admissions is now being broken, then perhaps, just perhaps, we've seen the last of such harsh uh, lockdowns. Looking ahead, we are pleased to say that we've taken the decision after a year's break to bring back the Glasgow Business Awards in uh, early October and we plan to make it, as far as we can, a physical event. We've got the Royal Bank of Scotland as our main sponsor, the Herald, of course, as our media Indeed. sponsor. And Very we want good. to recognise all those businesses that have made good progress despite all that has been happening to us uh, over the past 14 months. There's also going to be a special emphasis on the business community's response to climate change, as you might expect, given that COP26 will be just one month later. So you can look out for all the details on that on the Chamber website. We really welcome applications from now on. And on COP26, Alok Sharma was in town in his role as COP president. He got in just before the travel ban. And although <laughs> we still don't have a definitive statement on how COVID will affect the practical running of the summit, the mood music for a sizable face-to-face -face event is sounding positive as each week goes by. Very um, good. By far the most important outcome, of course, must be the collective climate change commitment. But we're also determined to use the opportunity to support Glasgow companies that have been responding to the challenge themselves. 
companies like Scottish Leather Group, Joe Chidley's The Beauty Kitchen, which is a great wee company to look at, and and uh, Scottish Power, of course. But of course, one of the better nuggets of news uh, was the announcement by a local business, Titan, that 11,000 new homes were on the way. Yay. A few close by the city centre would also be a welcome boost. <laughs> I'm sure I can work on that, sure. Thank you. <laughs> Stuart, can I ask you, what must be driving your members crazy is the contradictions. You know, in, in one day we have politicians of all parties asking as many people to gather in crowds as they could, and three days later they're telling crowds that they can't gather to celebrate Okay, their, their football club's achievements. So that that for me is one. The second one is that no fans were allowed into the Scottish Cup final, right? And now we are going to have twelve and a half thousand. And so, so there's definite proof that we are not just working on science. That politics are behind a lot of the decisions, and that must be driving your members crazy. I think one of the uh, particular concerns is that you can see all the examples being tried down south uh, on major events. Uh, well, you saw how many were in the, uh, were in the, 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 the FA Cup final, um, the, the um, Liverpool events to try yeah. to see if we can get gigs and concerts, uh, concerts yeah. going again and the extent to which, therefore, there is government backing for, for the testing and the follow-up that's necessary to see what impact yeah. they have. But we're just not seeing that, uh, that same willingness uh, here yet, yet. Huh? Stuart, is it true that Glasgow is the only local authority in Britain that's in tier three? It is true that we are the only local authority that has an official travel ban. Yeah. And that is, that's the real killer. Wow. Uh, or, or, that's what, you know, it's becoming absolutely clear cut that Glasgow is Glasgow the city region. It's not Glasgow the, yeah. the local authority city economically. Yeah. So you cut off Glasgow from its surrounding uh, region and you're really doing uh, quite uh, significant damage. But they looked at East Wren and said it could remain in level two because it was localised in terms of infections. So we basically compartmentalised it. But we know within Glasgow, it was fairly local. It wasn't the whole of Glasgow. How do you members feel about the fact that they didn't break Glasgow up and say, well, actually, the city centre's fine or north of the river is fine? And that is, yes, that's a view that we're getting back from members as well. Look, I mean, I do sympathise with the challenges that the politicians have had in making decisions when they still don't know for sure what the impact of the variant has been or will be. But I think I do get a wee sense of, I don't know if you saw some of the comments that were being made by uh, cabinet ministers over the last week suggest perhaps now uh, the evidence is beginning to gather up on the success of the vaccine programme that the risks are shifting. Uh, it is more risky to take harsh economic measures now uh, against the health measures that perhaps we might see more uh, targeted interventions and less use of the the large lockdown lever. If you If you look at the data which every politician has been saying they're data-led, then the data is telling us when people are vaccinated, they don't overwhelm the NHS and they don't block the beds and the death rate has come way down. So our one focus should be vaccinations. And for those who are not turning up for vaccinations, we need some way of convincing people to be vaccinated. I did see that at the hydro there were... 300 no-shows but I think now we're getting down to the younger elements and we're sending them letters and 
I know my kids never open. I mean, they don't know what a letter is. So we need to communicate to our target market in the way they want to receive information. It seems simple to me. But anyway, get vaccinated and then we don't need any more lockdowns. We learn to live with this. We're not getting it to zero, but we don't get flu to zero. We don't get flu to zero, but we live with it. Yep. And we need to le live... We need to learn to live with COVID because there'll be other variants, but the vaccinations are this brilliant thing that works. So get vaccinated. Absolutely agree with that. When you met ministers, did you get the impression that they were actually listening and understanding? We have a new government. I think there's a, a, a an opportunity to reset. And I think this time round, yes, actually, I did. Uh, get a sense that there was a positive hearing and there was a recognition that perhaps we have reached a, a new stage in the the whole uh, pandemic. I mean, one other thing which I would add in is that as we get more uh, nuanced in balancing the economic with the health risks, we need to sharpen up what the economic measures are. We go and have a look at what the government uses for economic measures. They're terribly high level. GDP and unemployment, and we know that unemployment is very much constrained by the job retention scheme at the moment, so you're not really using terribly uh, real-time measures for assessing what economic damage is. That's one thing I think we could do a wee bit better. Well, hopefully there'll be positivity in the months ahead, so thank you, Stuart. And coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Tracy Black, the CBI's Scotland Director. Don't forget, if you want to be part of the board you can't afford, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Supporting the lifeblood of the Scottish economy. Welcome back as we are joined by the CBI's Scotland Director, Tracy Black. If you want business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, you can email us at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Briefly, for those who aren't already aware, what's your role with the CBI and What's the main purpose of the organisation? Yeah, well, I run our Scotland office, which basically represents uh, our members that either uh, are headquartered in Scotland or operate in Scotland. And really, our, our key purpose is to be quite simply the voice of business, you know, for government policy to be really effective. You know, we believe it's best done in collaboration with all the relevant stakeholders, you know, that can provide that evidence and feeding in. So a great example of that would be the furlough scheme, which we help to develop with others uh, and the UK government. Well, obviously now businesses are starting to open up again and doing what they do best. But what do you see are the main challenges ahead? Well, I think there's a, a couple of them. One is cash flow. Obviously, there's been huge disruption over the last few months. So we really need to see consumers feeling confident to get back out there and support business. But also COVID is far from over. So I suppose it's keeping vigilant, you know, as we wait to see how these variants work out. Hopefully we won't have any more lockdowns. 
But, you know, we don't quite know what the future is going to bring. What further support do you think is needed? Um, well, one of the things we've said all along is that while uh, restrictions are placed, a support needs to be there. So we'll need to keep an eye on what happens in Glasgow, particularly for those in hospitality and retail. But things like restart grants can play a really important role in helping businesses get back uh, open. But we've also got parts of the economy that are still back to normal. So offices are still not open again, and that's having an impact on some. Uh, and of course, international travel. If we want to grow our exports, you really need to be able to support business travel. Um, so all of these things need to be done in conjunction, of course, with the health advice. In terms of COVID, how important do you think business has been in dealing with it and to, for the wider economy? Well, for one, um, it's business that's been, of course, behind uh, the development of PPE, the vaccines, the ventilators, uh, the supermarkets have had to stay open. Our agricultural uh, sector has produced the food. So the economy is fundamental to, you know, how we live and, and operate. So, you know, it's been an absolute critical part of the whole process. There are long-standing challenges for the Scottish economy, What's been the impact of pandemic on them? Well, I think, again, you know, some of the things we've been talking about that actually a lot of the old problems that existed, you know, pre the pandemic are still here today and they would evolve around low productivity. Uh, we don't export as much as we should, particularly if you take out whiskey, salmon and higher education. We're not spending enough in research and development. Uh, there's certain areas where we've got skill shortages. And on top of that, we've got this aging demographic. So there's some really fundamental problems there that we need to get on and, and tackle. Willie? Tracy, good morning. Hi there. Hi. Can I ask you, um, during lockdown, has the members appreciated that there's been more communication from the CBI? Has that been a big requirement? Yeah, like it's, it's you know, from day one, there was obviously a lot of confusion around the rules, the what could be done, what couldn't be done. Um, so we sort of set up these webinars at 10 o'clock uh, in the morning, which we had sort of hundreds, sometimes thousands of people on, which would give them those sort of facts and details. But also we needed our members to feed in about, you know, what they were really needing, what support, you know, and that was best seen in things like, you know, the financial support that's come through from both the UK and Scottish government. So from daily calls, uh, weekly uh, webinars, uh, huge amount of communication, as say us information gathering but also updating on the changing landscape so we've been saying for many weeks now that things will not be the same you know after hopefully we've come out the other end of this do you think that the cbi have learned things here and maybe a, maybe a different offer after this i think what's uh, is key is making sure that you're hearing from all sort of voices so you know not just big business but small business cross-sector uh, some sectors are very well mobilized, others maybe aren't. So, you know, technology has been a really good enabler for us in that where, you know, traditionally people might have to fly down to London, be part of a round table because of Zoom calls and WebEx and Teams. It's meant that it's been really easy for us to reach a large percentage of our membership quickly and respond back and feed in quickly. So those are lessons that we've definitely learned and we will continue to use. Tom. Um, morning, Tracy. It's Tom here. Morning, Tom. How are you? Good, thank you. A Good. Bit tired. Uh, yes, <laughs> indeed. 
Um, I've got a, a question this morning because I think you're doing a really good job at the CBI. I've always been a great advocate for the entrepreneurial side of business and we didn't really speak with the CBI and I think that's wrong now. So what can we do to get this joined up? Because we all want the same thing. We want Scotland's businesses to flourish regardless of size. So I think there needs to be a conversation across this barrier or am I, am I seeing this wrong, Tracy? I completely agree because let's face it, most of our businesses and our startups, up, you know, some of them are B2C, but a lot of them are B2B. And I think one of the toughest things for startups is getting that foot in the door. It's those networks. It's that facilitation. Sometimes the simplest things we forget. So I do think by the entrepreneurial community getting access to the CBI's membership can create great opportunities. We're seeing that in the Net Zero Challenge, you know, shoe scope for collaboration. And some of the great innovations are actually coming from our startups. So there is a real scope there, I believe. Okay, well, listen, if if I can help or Willie can help bridge that, then that's what we're all about. We want to see all of Scotland's businesses flourish. So anything we can do. Fantastic. And we'd also like to offer if there's anything we can do to help the CBI as well. Please look at this as a platform. If you want to get a message out there for the members or anything at all, Tracy, we'll be more than delighted to, to accommodate you. Well, that would be excellent as well because there's lots of things we're working on and it is actually just making sure people are informed of what's available and what the opportunities are. You talked about uh, some of the long-standing challenges for the Scottish economy and there's been reports like the Tom Hunter report, the Benny Higgins Commission coming to the same conclusions. What is it we need to do to address those challenges? Uh, well, my team has been talking a lot about this, that we sort of need less talking and more concrete action. Um, I think Scotland, uh, you know, uh, you know, is very good at that long-term thinking, but it's now getting into the delivery. So we completely support like Tom's report. There's been the Benny Higgins Commission, but many of our members are like, but what does that mean for me? Again, I've sort of mentioned net zero before, you know, everybody agrees with the goal, but now we really need to sit down and think about how do we achieve that? The same of our upskilling and reskilling challenge, you know, what needs to be done to make it happen? At the moment, there's not nearly enough money going into that area. So how do we readdress that? Well, you, you regularly appear on platforms alongside Scotland's foremost political and business leaders and have a reputation as an essential economic commentator. But is anyone in government listening to those key messages? Well, there's certainly a lot of competing uh, interests out there. But I do think it's absolutely essential that, you know, both governments understand the needs of the economy if they want to deliver on their promises, particularly around education and health, for example. But the pandemic has shown that collaboration can work. You know, I talked before about furlough, the bounce back loans, Sybils, all of that has been done in collaboration. In Scotland, of course, we had things like the business rates holidays, which have been absolutely essential for many of our uh, members. So I do think government is listening and we are you know, building out hopefully what will be a sort of build back better future. Really? Tracy, it's interesting to hear you talk about skilling and upskilling. <clears throat> I'd be interested to find out one of the things that I have been bitterly disappointed in in a policy over the last few years was the introduction of the apprenticeship levy. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think there's a trade body, a company in Britain that I've heard thought it was a good idea. 
once once you read the small print, and I would um, I hopefully get the chance to encourage the Scottish government to have a serious look at the small print. It's great that we may have been handed some money from Westminster, and that's great. But in my own experience. I, I believe that this has absolutely caused a, a massive reduction in the amount of meaningful apprenticeships that's been born out in Scotland. Well, I, I would certainly agree that if the whole apprenticeship levy has been a topic that we have revisited over and over again with members across the UK. You know, it's not all bad. There are many uh, businesses in Scotland engaging it and we have seen uh, in areas numbers going up. But I would uh, completely agree with you, Willie, that the whole funding of it, how the money is uh, allocated, spent, needs to be reviewed because, you know, workplace learning has an absolute role in the future if we want to tackle things like productivity in Scotland. Um, and apprenticeships are a fantastic route to that. How how could anyone disagree that that you know that on site learning is not part of the training? Well, I think you know most people do agree. The problem is there's just uh, whether we like it or not, never enough money in the pot. So it's how do you take what we've got, and it's a considerable sum. You know, in Scotland we spend about two and a half billion pounds in education, and we've got amazing educational establishments here. So it's not ever wanting to be an either or but the reality is we need to look at how we're spending that money and the return on that investment and one of the key areas has got to be in investing in on-site learning. But Tracy my problem with apprenticeship levy is and again in the small print is that the the trumpet at the time saying this is not a tax the more that you put in we will give you 10% back so for someone like me the levy on me was £700,000 a year so that's great we pay £700,000 in tax if we want to have apprentices then we can if, if we spend that amount of money in apprentices we can actually get another 70000 on top of that that sounds like a really good idea until you read the small print yeah they will, they will only pay you for the days that the apprentice is at formal education so that could be one day a week it could be one week a month so what I can tell you in my own experience is it meant that we reduced our apprenticeships by 60%. Oh, dear. Right, and every, and every single trade union, every company I've ever heard talk about this think it's a bad idea, and I can't believe that that has not got through to the UK government. You're not going to get disagreement from me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> no. I can only sit here. If you saw me, if I was in the studio, you'd see me nodding. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, I, I think, Tracy, this is ex ex exactly, you know, Willie's the largest private sector employer in Scotland now. And, you know, this is about this way of telling the policymakers, look, that's great, you've sat and wrote a policy in isolation, but on the ground it's not working, so please change it and listen and do it in collaboration. I love that, what you said earlier, do it in collaboration with business. So don't write policy on top of business, get them to do it with business. Yeah, I think it's seeing that support is there. Like one of the things we've noticed in the new cabinet, of course, is now there's not a specific person with skills in their title, which we had before, which we sort of feel, you know, is a bit, a bit strange considering how key, you know, skills, whether that's existing skills, upskilling, reskilling is going to be. And it's like, who has got that responsibility or is it going to be spread across a number of roles? Well, talking of skills, you sit on the Skills Development Scotland. What are the key skills needed for business success? 
Well, unfortunately, I, you know, I think, you know, there's not a magic formula uh, and there's a lot of talk goes into things around soft skills. I actually always sort of correct that and call them essential skills. But I think particularly now, you know, communication is always critical. And that doesn't matter if you're leading an organization or if you're part of a team, but how you get your ideas across. And of course, that's particularly challenging when many of us are stuck at home and you're not doing that face-to-face interaction. So those essential skills will never go away. But of course, it is all about upskilling. You know, business has transformed in the last 20, 30 years. When I started, you know, none of us had Outlooks, none of us had mobile phones, none of us had online accounting systems. So it's absolutely essential that businesses keep investing in their skills base and keep up with what consumers want uh, from the, the companies that they interact with. On a personal level, you've been actively involved in leadership and mentoring programmes, in particular working with school children, prisoners and ex-offenders. What made you get involved and what impact have you had? Well, you know, I was actually brought up by a really hardworking single mother. She was a hairdresser on, on low pay, but she absolutely believed in getting me a good education. I also have had professional mentors and sort of non-professional mentors in my life. And I've just seen how influential that can have on a person, particularly if they're not a family member. You know, it's great if you have got parents or an aunt or uncle you can talk to, but having someone who's just focused on you and, and giving you that guidance is really constructive. So from my own personal experience, it's really worked for me. So it was something I was just really passionate to get involved in myself. And luckily I've worked in organizations that have had great sort of mentorship programs that I could sort of pick up on. And finally, what's been the best advice that you've been given? Uh, well, I say my mentors have probably given me uh, quite a, a lot, but I think one of them is really sort of understanding about, you know, what makes you unique um, and focus on that um, and, and, and have that confidence and believe. You know, when I started on the trading floor at UBS, you know, I, I didn't go in as a graduate and I was really lacking confidence. I couldn't really understand why they would listen to me. You know, I wasn't a trader or a techie. And the head of trading there, you know, sort of pointed out one day that, you know, I've only got one of you and I've got hundreds of them. And that sort of really made me sit up and realize that actually we've each bring a unique skill set to a role. And, and you've got to have belief in that. Fantastic. And good luck with the challenges ahead. Thank you, Tracy. Good luck, Tracy. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks Thanks for coming on. It's been great speaking to you. Lovely. Thank you very much, guys. Bye. Bye. Coming up next is The Board You Can't Afford with Hunter and Hockey. If you're looking for business insight or have a general business question for Tom and Willie, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The board you couldn't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with business advice, insight and inspiration. It's the board you can't afford. If you have a question you want read out in the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag gohunterandhockey. We're going to our phone lines now and our first caller is Stuart Wright from SNJ Recruitment. Welcome to the show, Stuart. Hi, Donald. Delighted to have you on board. So what is it you want to ask Tom and Willie? Um, It was really to ask what's the best tip to scale a business that's already doing reasonably well 
and comfortable without risking its future. Oh, I think Tom wants to answer that. So, hi, hi, Stuart. Morning. How are you? I'm okay, Tom. How are you? I am tip top, tip top. So, so tell us a wee bit. Give your business a wee plug on the Go Radio Business Show. Yeah, we've been going for about ten years now. Ten years, just April there. Right. Um, and we've been doing. We've scaled reasonably well. Um, we've got some largest clients, but we've got a small client base. They're just very loyal to us. Um, We've got really about half a dozen uh, clients that are regular and then we've got about another dozen that come and go throughout the year. Um, and it's really to try and take us to the next level. I, I'd, I'd like some ideas on how to do that. Right. So, I mean, when when I was scaling businesses, I always the biggest risk was trying to invest ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. And it's always an investment in people and you being a recruitment consultant will understand that. Yep. But I... But I always went for people that I couldn't just quite afford, mm-hmm. but and I invested in them just ahead of the demand. And those people pretty much always paid back straight away for me. Uh-huh. And it's having that confidence to have a look and say, right, well, that, that person would be brilliant for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, can I afford them? Can I know it? But you'll understand every nut and bolt in your business You'll understand how it all works. Mm-hmm. And you as the leader need to make these big, bold decisions. Not You're not betting the ranch, you know. You don't want a, a one-person hire to take you down or anything. Yeah. And I don't think from the size of your business it would. But just getting these key people on board ahead of your business expansion has stood me in good stead. I, I think... Um from my point of view, we've concentrated so much in servicing our, our loyal customers that it's done really well because they've grown and we've grown as a result. But there's probably more that needs to go into actually expanding the actual client base. I think that is probably from what you're saying is investing in people to do that for us. Willie, what's your best tip for Stuart and the way to scale a business that's doing well? Morning, Stuart. Morning, Willie. It's funny, um, although we might be a bit larger than your business my business is very much the same although we have a big business I've got kind of six big customers that that represent the bulk of my turnover globally Mm -hmm. and I think the the tip I always give anyone in this position is you know that building relationships at the start is the hardest part and I think to scale up any business the first thing I would do would try and do more for these good clients I already have That always worked for me. Mm -hmm. So look at different avenues. They trust you. You've got kind of partnership. Mm -hmm. You know, I started off doing just the FM for Asda. Then they asked me to do procurement. Then they asked me to do engineering services. Then they asked me to do cleaning. So it took me away in all sorts of directions that I didn't plan to go. But what I knew was I had a good client there that I wanted to work with who treated me right, who paid me well. Like, to be fair, all our clients do today. So my first piece of advice would be Try and do more for the solid clients that you've got. At the same time, try to look at, at new business. Was that helpful, yeah, that's, Stuart? that's good food for thought. Thanks, Willie. You're welcome. And good luck. And you can keep in touch with the show and let us know how you got on. Okay, will do. Thank you. Yeah, good luck, Stuart. Thanks for the Thanks. call. Thanks. Our next caller is Ian Kelly, who's got a great question for Tom and Willie. Welcome to the show, Ian. Hello, how you doing, boys? Morning. Oh, gas that question. Yeah, it's what's your biggest business failure or mistake and what did you learn from it? 
Oh, I think I've got to take that one, Ian. How are you this morning? I'm good. Ten fingers, ten toes. Tom, all is good. All Thank right, you. good man. So I, th- I, I obviously, my biz- biggest business mistake was in the last financial crisis, we ended up losing over £250 million, which is mm. sounds a lot of money, actually, but it was quite easy to do. And looking back... Why did we get there? First of all, as the leader, it was 100% my fault and my responsibility. And it was because we had spread into too many investments. We had 53 different investments and we weren't good enough. We had lost our focus. We had lost the key skills that had brought us success in the first place. And if I'm honest, we'd got a bit arrogant about being able to make money. But my goodness, did I learn a big lesson there. Mm -hmm. So we had to get back on the bus. We had to refocus. We had to eat the humble pie. And then we had to go back to basics. The focus, the relentless focus on our investments, our relationships, our key people. And I'm glad to say um, we've made it all back and then a wee bit more today. So it was a humbling mistake, Ian, but... I actually don't regret it now. There you are. There you are. Willie? is easy, Ian. Um, About 20 years ago, when we were predominantly a refrigeration company, when when glass-fronted bottle cooling cabinets became older age in pubs where you're going to get your nice cold beer and you could see it there glistening in the cabinet. Uh, At one stage, I was supplying more of these cabinets into the brewers and into pubs than every other refrigeration company in Britain put together, right? So I'd kind of a huge chunk of the market. And I just decided, well, wait a minute, I'm buying hundreds of these and these guys I'm buying off at a manufacturing, they're getting a big margin. So driven by greed, I decided I'll manufacture myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went into a partnership with a guy to manufacture the bottle cooling cabinets. And I'd have to say, yeah, it was like digging a big hole round the back and every day driving a wheelbarrow round with uh, full of tenors and throwing <laughs> it down a big hole. So I would say to you that... Uh, what I learned from that, and I've used the phrase a few times in the programme, is uh, stick to the knitting. Know what you're good at. Stick to what you know that you, you've got, you know, you've got a bit of savvy about. And I knew nothing about manufacturing. This guy helped me to ransom, and I, I probably, not in the same <laughs> bracket, Tom, but I probably lost a few million pounds that I shouldn't have, and that was all down to greed. So my biggest mistake and my biggest learning, and since then I'd like to think that I haven't been that greedy. And what about you, Ian? Has there been a mistake that you've made and what did you learn from that? Oh, I wasn't expecting this. Uh, I, I was just phoning in for the free dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a true entrepreneur. See, for your honesty, you're we're going to send you the book as well. I've got a question for Hugh Cavins, you know. What was the <laughs> were you at the game, caller? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Ian, you sound like a true entrepreneur, so good luck to you. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> Take care, Ian. Listen, lovely, lovely to talk to you, boys. Thank you. Thanks. Right. Thank bye. you. Bye. bye. Cheers. Cheerio, bye. Bye. Our next caller is Jamie Curry from Home Rewire. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Hi, guys. How are you doing? What's your question for Tom and Willie? 
Hi Tom, hi Willie. So we're a relatively small electrical contractor based in Glasgow and we operate pretty well and we, we do quite a lot of business in the area. Mm-hmm. Almost daily we get asked to work across the UK and all the kind of big cities and, and um, it's got to the point we feel, is it worth exploring? Um, we feel we could market to these places pretty easily, we feel we could pick up quite a lot of business but it seems like a real logistical headache so... We were wondering if you had any advice or tips on scaling a, a trades-type business into people's homes and doing it across the, the country and any potential pitfalls. Morning, Jamie. It's Willie here. Hi, Willie. Give me a wee idea about what you do. Is it domestic, electrics, commercial? What was it you do? So we do uh, domestic rewires. All we do is rewire houses uh, and only in the private market. And we've made a point of sticking to that. So we can rewire up to kind of 10 private houses a week um, with occupied tenants in them uh, and the niches that we do really quickly so we'll do that usually in a day or two and we provide all the, the reinstatement services such as plastering decoration um, so it's the full package okay and where are you based we're in glasgow at the moment right so and you're saying that you're getting opportunities to be all over the place which i, I, I can imagine is happening at the moment yeah, so we're in Glasgow, we do a lot of work in Edinburgh, we're happy to travel through there, but almost daily we get emails and calls for works in kind of London, uh, Newcastle, uh, Aberdeen, Ayrshire, uh, and we're just trying to figure out how we can scale that. Um, it, it's funny you say that, we've just, just got involved and started the first site on, on our house building and uh, the civil engineering company that we're dealing with, um, they, they were a good business, Glasgow-based business, but they've been dragged, you know, and they've been working, doing a lot of work in London over the last few years. And when we spoke to them about doing our stuff here, it was kind of like, you know, they're saying it'd be a great opportunity to get nearer to home, but keep yeah. the volume, you know. So um, I would say to you, I think there'll be plenty of work locally. Yeah. Um, well, certainly, you know, if you look what we're doing, look what Tom is doing, you know, the various houses that are going up, I think the infrastructure spend from the government going forward will mean there's a, a lot of work. I think for you, to be honest with you, my advice to people would be always look to work further afield when you think you've reached saturation locally, right? Because obviously your margin doesn't suffer as much. Um, and what I'd say to you definitely is uh, it sounds like a wee interesting business and make sure you drop me a wee note and I'll make sure that my procurement guys have got a wee note of who you are yeah. and, and hopefully you'll, you'll get on the tender list. That sounds good. Yeah, I think it's not much to add from, from me, Jamie. I think Willie's advice is bang on there. The, the easiest way is to do more where you are and from what I'm hearing there's a skills shortage for tradesmen etc so I think you're in a very good space and good luck and that 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 one thing you've did with Willie there that might just turn your business so please keep in touch with the show and we look forward to hearing from you in the future Brilliant guys thanks for your advice Good luck Good luck Jimmy Good luck Cheers We've got some email questions now Kevin Nickel who's asking what and where is the balance between giving or not giving a new customer credit? It always feels like a gamble. Willie? Yeah, it's a big, big risk, especially for small companies. To be fair, um, you know, more recently there's better places now where you can find out what people's credit rating is. You know, in the old days it was, it was a bit tougher. But it is important because there's nothing like a bad debt to set you right back. You know, all your hard work could be down the drain in a moment. So I would do everything. And also what I tend to do is build up someone's credit limit. You know, don't start off with giving somebody £50,000 that you don't know. You know, 
give them three thousand pound of credit. Make sure you get paid. See what next month looks like. You know, don't don't jump in with someone who offers you a two hundred thousand pound contract when you're when you're a hundred thousand pound turnover business. I think that's very very important. Tom, yeah. When I was first starting out, one of my my rules was that I wanted to be in a business where I wasn't giving people credit mm-hmm. um, because one cash flow was everything. So I wanted a business where my suppliers would give me credit, but my customers would pay me straight away because I had a positive cash flow. I, I kind of fell into it with selling trainers that way. But yeah, giving customers credit, oh my goodness, what a minefield. But he also never gave any credit to his senior management team either, you know. So. <laughs>